One spring evening in 1838, formerly enslaved African-American Moses Roper spoke to a crowded audience in Leicester, England. During one section of his speech, he declared, Many will say, this is the slave side of the question. The slaveholders would tell a different story. You have heard the slaveholder story 250 years ago. Now I think it is time for the slaves to speak. In an extraordinary chapter of the anti-slavery movement, hundreds of black activists, many of whom were formerly enslaved, echoed Roper's bold decision to tell the truth about slavery. Many of these individuals sought temporary reprieve from American soil. Others, permanent residents in the UK. Some raised money to free themselves or their enslaved family members. Others sought work with varying degrees of success. Black men such as Frederick Douglass, William Wells Brown, Josiah Henson, and women such as Sarah Parker Raymond lectured in large cities and tiny fishing villages, wrote narratives, stayed with influential reformers, and ensured millions of words were written about them in the newspapers. The Victorian press is littered with coverage of their speeches, from the John O'Groats Journal to the Royal Cornwall Gazette, alongside accounts of audiences cramming into tiny churches or town halls to cure an insatiable appetite for knowledge about American slavery. And even by the end of the 19th century, this appetite had not abated. Activists such as Ida B. Wells built on the precedent set by Moses Voper and declared to a Leeds audience in 1894 that it was her mission to tell the black people's side of the story. In a powerful and succinct summary, Wells echoed the reason why African Americans travelled to Britain, to champion their testimony against slavery and its legacies and to challenge white supremacy. Hello and welcome to episode 41 of American History 2. I'm Mark McClay and celebrating our third birthday together as podcast hosts, I'm joined as always by Malcolm Craig. Hello Malcolm. Hello Mark, yeah three years old, we're walking by ourselves now. Just, be... uh, just about, I still feel like I'm crawling but... We might be even <laughs> even able to form coherent sentences at some point. That's yeah three ambition. years, who would have thought? Uh so in a previous episode, in actually episode 29 with uh, our guest Matt Griffin, we talked about transatlantic abolitionism uh, in the 19th century, the anti-slavery movement. And we're returning to that topic uh, today. And a part of our discussion is going to be focused around uh, a man of whom the uh, current American president, Donald J. Trump, said, Frederick Douglass is an example of somebody who's done an amazing job and is getting recognized more and more, I notice. So Frederick Douglass is going to be one of the key figures in our discussion today about uh, black abolitionists in Britain. Uh, and we're going to be joined by Hannah Rose Murray, uh, who's done some fantastic work mapping and cataloguing and analysing uh, the efforts of black abolitionist speakers uh, in the United Kingdom prior to the American Civil War. So welcome to the, welcome to the show. And could you just give us a minute's precie of your research? Well, thank you for having me. Um, my research focuses on black abolitionist speeches, their resistance against slavery and racism in Britain. So I've collected hundreds of speeches um, given by these individuals from around the mid-1830s, 1895, and analysed their uh, different performative techniques they used to teach others about slavery and challenge white supremacy. So basically, kind of how they adapted to their environment to win support for abolition. And to have a, 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 a sorry, 
to have a successful lecturing tour, I argue that black men and women need to rely on three things. So really strong performance, an extensive abolitionist network they could take advantage of, and their ability to exploit um, print culture like the Victorian press. Fantastic. And another a major part of your research kind of output, uh, and I remember first hearing about this in a, a paper you gave at the Scottish Association for the Study of America uh, conference, is this brilliant website you've put together called Frederick Douglass in Britain, which is, I mean, a wonderful resource. And we'll put a link up for it, encourage anyone to investigate it. It's a brilliant teaching tool as well. And it maps Frederick Douglass's speeches throughout Britain. How did that, how did that come about? And do you have any kind of wider ambitions for, for taking that forward? Well, thank you. Yeah, I think there were two main reasons for me doing the mapping projects. And the first slightly embarrassing reason was that my knowledge of British geography was awful, particularly in Scotland. I shouldn't probably mention that to you guys, but um, I I didn't really have a good geography. So it was a way for me to learn. Um, But obviously, the main reason I started collecting all of these locations, um, particularly with Frederick Douglass, was it allowed me to ask questions uh, about how they travelled around Britain. Where were they staying? Where were they going? Where were they lecturing in certain areas? Are there patterns? And of course there are. By looking at this map, we can see that Douglas spoke in Bristol, Taunton and Exeter. And that actually follows one of the railway lines. Um, this is in the mid-1840s. Um, it allows us to look at places like Bristol. Why did he give so many lectures there? Because he knew a family there and stayed with them and they organised that lectures for him. Um, in terms of wider ambitions, I think I would just like to keep adding locations. I keep finding new locations of Douglas and other black abolitionists. So I just want to keep expanding it and perhaps making a, a map to Moses Roper as well, who really travelled extensively around the UK. And I think it's just a really nice visual about how abolitionists really made an impact on British society and a really indelible mark on um, the UK, which I think we should be talking about a lot more. So, I mean, to sort of get into today's topic then, and normally to get us started, you know, we kind of like to begin by asking a broad question to gently ease ease us into the topic, but I kind of want to do things a wee bit differently this thing. Um, I mean, when you pitched this, uh, the podcast to us, you mentioned Ellen Craft, um, whose story you said deserves a whole podcast into itself. Now, I can't quite offer that, but um, I'd like you to start this podcast by telling us the story of Ellen Craft. I feel a bit of pressure now, but it's a really interesting <laughs> story. And Ellen was born enslaved in a plantation in, in Georgia. And uh, she met her husband when she was about 20 and um, married. Although, obviously, by law in the South, slave marriages weren't technically uh, legal. Um, but both of them were determined to escape. In, and in 1848, they devised this ingenious escape plan. So Ellen would pose as a, a white southerner and William would pose as her manservant or slave, and they would catch a series of trains and steamboats up to the north. So you might think, how is this possible? Ellen was quite fair-skinned, and that was a result of her mother's rape by the plantation owner. So Ellen could actually pass for a white person, but she couldn't read or write, as that was forbidden for um, slaves to, to read and write. So to overcome that, Ellen strapped a bandage to her right hand to give her a reason not to be able to write when they arrived at train stations and things. She cut her hair, bought men's clothes that she can wear, and they planned the escape around about Christmas time. Sometimes enslaved individuals were given a few days off around that time so they wouldn't be automatically missed. 
I mean, it seems really obvious to stress, but this was a really incredibly dangerous thing to do. And it was a really huge risk. And it, it's such a testament to Ellen's bravery that they managed to pull it off. Everything rested on her performance as a white man. And considering that both of them had never gone out of the state before, it's just it's just a really, really incredible story. And, you know, when she boarded the train, as was the custom, she had to sit in a separate carriage where all the white people sat. And William had to go to what was called, the, you know, the Negro carriage, as it were. Um, and it kind of tells a bit like a movie, really. So Ellen sat in this compartment and then this white man walks in and she recognises him um, as a friend of her slave owner. So she has to try and pretend to be deaf so that she doesn't talk to him or he doesn't talk to her. So there's all sorts of numerous things happen to them on this journey, but they, they manage to pull it off and they settle in Boston. But the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 means that they're in danger. And this slave act i think you mentioned this on the last podcast but um it basically gave slaveholders and slave catches the power to travel from the south where slavery existed to the northern states to drag their former slaves back into the jaws of slavery as it were so um william and a friend of his called lewis hayden they basically lined the door of the craft's house full of dynamite and they waited for these slave catchers um, who had caught wind of where they were hiding um, to kind of rock up at the door. And as they did so, William Craft and Lewis shouted loudly, um, the door is lined with dynamite and if you don't back off, I will blow the house because I'd much rather die than go back into slavery. And they backed off. That's an amazing just, story. Just deserves its own podcast. That deserves its own movie. <laughs> Why has nobody made that into a film yet? I know, I know. Twelve years of slave. Um, mm. So, I mean, how does? I mean, sticking with Ellen Craft because I'm not quite read, ready to let her go yet. Um, I mean, how does her? Uh, has how does her pale skin then figure into her own abolitionist activism? Well, she became a real celebrity at anti-slavery meetings and they both started going to these meetings in America. Um, obviously, after the dynamite incident, they uh, actually travelled to the UK and, and stayed here for nearly 20 years, actually. And they'd have this sort of rehearsed process where William would usually speak first and discuss their escape. And Ellen would quietly sit at the end of the lecturing stage and at the end of William's talk, she would often stand up and the audience would, you know, um, cheer or clap their hands or something. And that speaks to not only Victorian racial dynamics, but gender dynamics, because women weren't meant to speak publicly on a political subject. Um, and also, you know, black women also weren't really meant to be um, speaking in that kind of public sphere. So Ellen would actually use her body, use her silence as a way to kind of recognize or get her audiences to recognize the brutality of slavery you know her pale skin was a result of rape and by standing and confirming that um, she was also confirming what William said as well but despite all these public performances that rested on her uh, so-called whiteness you know the newspapers at the time in Britain referred to her as the white slave Ellen always aligned herself with her black identity which I think is a really important thing to point out you know she turned her home in London into this sort of hub of activism invited black abolitionists to stay and helped help formerly enslaved people and I mean was this kind of a, a common way for female slaves to express themselves and I mean where and where female activists, where they prom, where they at, where there are a lot of activists compared to the the sort of famous male names that have sort of echoed down that we know about now. 
Well, I think in terms of complexion and, and in terms of her silence, I think that's actually a really unique form of activism. Um, she did sometimes speak on the American stage, but I haven't found any evidence of her actually giving a lecture in the UK. It doesn't mean there, there isn't one, but I'd be very surprised if there was. But again, because of what I was mentioning about the kind of gender and racial dynamics that you know, women and black women in particular weren't meant to be speaking on a public stage. But Harriet Jacobs, who wrote very famous narrative, she actually came to Britain um, to try and have her narrative published here. There was another formerly enslaved woman called Dinah who travelled to the UK and had her narrative published. I've discovered another woman um, called Mrs Jackson, who was the activist wife of John Andrew Jackson. Unfortunately, I can't find a reference to her first name, but she was actually the first formerly enslaved black woman to speak about her experiences of slavery on the British stage. So she's sort of performing this really radical act of transatlantic feminism, really. But again, she was constrained by gender dynamics because her husband would usually speak first and then she would offer a very short speech afterwards about the violence of slavery. So how many... So like, taking a kind of wider view of things, how many former slaves actually, you know, actively engaged in, in abolitionism ad, ad efforts? Do we know that? <laughs> well, I'm going to try and give a sort of typical historian type answer and say we don't exactly know for sure. I would estimate at least 100, probably I'd push it to 150 I mean, Richard Blackett has estimated that at least 40 were active during the American Civil War. And obviously, if we're thinking about abolitionist efforts, you know, that can include speaking, writing, challenging white supremacy in, in any way. So obviously, you know, we know about people like Frederick Douglass. We know about the author and famous orator William Wells Brown. We know about the crafts. We know about Henry Box Brown and Josiah Henson, but we don't know a lot about the people like, so Dinah I mentioned, or John Williams or Lewis Smith. Um, what we do know is that it became really important for anti-slavery societies in Britain and in America, actually, that it was important for them to have a formerly enslaved person speak at their meetings because it gave a level of authenticity, really, to their mission. You know, here was a person actually speaking about their experience as a slave. They're giving their testimony. No white abolitionist could do that and and black activists actually did that they forced people to realize the strength of their testimony and kind of thinking in particular about your kind of research area was britain a particular target for abolitionist efforts during this the antebellum period yes definitely i mean britain had abolished the slave trade in 1807 and slavery in the 18 in, in 1834 but it is important to note that slavery did still continue in the british empire Regardless of that, Britain was a very important place in the black abolitionist mind. You know, Britain was a symbol for America to say, OK, Britain had abolished slavery. America can do that, too. And Frederick Douglass in particular was really fond of saying how ironic it was that America had broken free from this sort of ty tyrannical Britain with a monarchy. Um, but America had obviously set up a Republican nation based on freedom, but then enslaved several million people. So that kind of language really helped by going to Britain. But people traveled to Britain for numerous re reasons. And I think the other important thing to mention here is that there wasn't necessarily a language barrier. I mean, people did go to France and Germany, but obviously by going to Britain, you don't have to have your speeches translated or you don't have to speak German or French or something like that. You know, formerly enslaved people 
came over to Britain to live, like I mentioned, the craft stayed here for several years. They raised money for, for specific things to free themselves or enslave family members. They raised money on behalf of specific societies in the UK, but then also from American societies as well, because the two transatlantic societies were really um, were, were linked. Um, they sold narratives. And I think the other thing as well, which I think we'll talk a little bit about later, is the networks. You know, those connections between American and British abolitionists were really, really, really key. And I suppose the last thing I'd say as well is that African-Americans were coming to Britain to teach Britons about slavery and actually how Britain had, you know, inv- basically just started the slave trade, because, you know, was really central in, in, in maintaining it. And also the legacy of that was American slavery. So Britain's role in abolition wasn't done yet. You know, they couldn't rest on their laurels and activists were constantly saying that. So in our last episode with Jeremy Young, we were discussing uh, the way that uh, political speakers and religious speakers in America from 1870 onwards used these kind of charismatic and magnetic techniques to address their audiences. And in the thesis chapter that you shared with us prior to uh, recording, uh, you note that kind of the speakers that you deal with use different techniques to engage their audience, to provoke reactions garner publicity uh for their abolitionist efforts i mean what was what was involved in all of this and how did they engage with audiences well there were several ways i think one of the most key things was that formerly enslaved people would exhibit whips and chains or any kind of weapons of torture and that had actually been used a lot within 18th century abolitionism thomas clarkson famously used those methods to try and convince people that slavery was a very brutal and very evil institution. Um, Someone like Moses Roper, who again you opened with, he actually wore chains down a London street, which I think is a really interesting form of activism and and sort of technique because he's actually reaching white audiences that might not necessarily have come to an anti-slavery meeting. So he's trying to do things on an abolitionist and non-abolitionist stage. I think another really key thing as well is that Formerly enslaved people would read from Southern newspapers, from Southern advertisements, um, white witness accounts of slavery. And that would include runaway adverts that might have said, um, John, as a slave, he's run away and this, I require this amount as as a reward. And he has a scar on his face where he's being beaten or where he has been beaten. And Douglas used that a lot to highlight the brutality of slavery. And even Ida B. Wells, as an activist, uses that method in the 1890s. And she phrases it beautifully when she said, out of their own mouths be condemned. So obviously what she's saying there is that um, by using white accounts, she can persuade white people of the brutality of racial violence and lynching. The other thing as well that formerly enslaved people would use is visual culture. So they would use maps of the southern slave states They would use photographs of scarred backs of formerly enslaved people. They would use panoramas, which a panorama is basically sort of an early form of cinema. So there's a large painting on canvas that was scrolled in front of audiences, revealing various scenes. So you could tell a story about Africans being captured and and sold into slavery. And obviously, will those visual means you have that powerful rhetoric, you know, the carefully worded speeches and oratory where, you have people like William Wells Brown who displayed his panorama and he was saying things like, if Britons really knew the true nature of slavery, he said in his words, it would frighten the hyena out of its ferocity. 
Wow. Um, I mean, think, thinking about all these, like, you know, kind of really extravagant methods to use, I mean, how much of this is theatre, in a sense, for the audience? You know, how much is it, oh, no, Hamlet's booked out of the old Vic this Saturday. Do you know what? I'll go and pop along and see when, you know, Moses Roper perform, you know, his abolitionist stick. Or are the audience there to take it seriously? Are they there to learn something? Um, I mean, what's your kind of, I, mean, I suppose this might be a wee bit unknowable, but I mean, what, what's your take on what's going on? I think those two elements are an important part of it. I would say one of the main reasons was racial curiosity. You know, here is a black man, a woman speaking about their experience and they're speaking about their experience of of slavery and racial violence. And there's that interest there. And that also kind of speaks to racial dynamics. I think there were some, particularly in the working classes who were just really identifying with the suffering that formerly enslaved people went through. So they were actually really supportive of formerly enslaved people, although actually activists caution against that identification because obviously slavery didn't exist in British soil. So people like Frederick Douglass and William Wells Brown always tried to say, yes, you are suffering, particularly if they were speaking to a working class audience, but they would always say, you don't know what slavery is like. Only I can say that. Um, I think theatre, though, is a really interesting thing because whenever you're performing or whenever you're speaking in front of an audience, whether it's an intimate, private, aristocratic dining room or an audience in front of 6,000 people, you're performing. And there is the elements of of performance in theatre throughout. But I suppose thinking about theatre, the person I think about most is Henry Box Brown. So Brown was born in enslaved in Virginia and he actually trusted a carpenter to make him a box. And in one of the most famous examples of a fugitive slave escape, apart from Ellen Craft, of course, Brown posted himself in this box from Richmond to Philadelphia. And astute businessman that Brown was, he recognised that that actually worked really well on the, an entertainment stage and he turned that into a piece of theatre. So obviously those people coming to see Brown, there is that kind of entertainment sphere and an and entertainment aspect to it, especially actually when he reenacted his famous escape attempt and boxed himself up in Bradford and he was put in, onto a train and the tra- when the train arrived in Leeds, he um, sort of jumped out of the box and, you know, so crowds and hundreds of people cheering and laughing and you know so it's a beautiful image i think yeah <laughs> um i mean what what struck me when reading your chapter that you sent was on, on moses roper uh who you know as we've already mentioned we met in the opening vignette for this episode is just how much control the white press and white members of anti-slavery and abolitionist networks had um on whether a former slave such as Roper, uh, was successful in their, their speaking tours, you know. Um, and, and for instance, you know, they were successful in labeling him as an imposter who was never a slave and, they could, you know, they could incut, undercut his entire message. Um, I was wondering if you could first just speak a wee bit more about Roper as an individual himself and, and to what extent former slaves completely relied on white support. Yeah, sure. So Roper was born enslaved in 1915 in North Carolina and he suffered from extreme violence and torture as a result of his numerous escape attempts. And when his sort of final escape attempt um, was successful, he ended up in the, the northern states. And then he travelled to the UK, published a narrative here and lived here for several years. And I think his story really illustrates how important white support could be. 
because again, thinking about Victorian racial dynamics, white support bestowed respectability and credibility to their message. So if they were supported by an influential aristocrat or middle class person, you know, they had these testimonials, these written letters saying that this person can be believed, this person was actually a slave and he's authentic. So therefore that Roper could go around or Douglas or anyone really, and could go around to places and go to a church and say, okay, Reverend, you hear all these testimonials, please, may I speak in your church? So it, it opened up a lot of networks. And Roper's story is interesting because I found several instances where white people have deliberately sabotaged his tour. So, for example, an abolitionist named Thomas Price, who actually wrote a letter in Roper's narrative as a testimonial saying, this guy's authentic and he deserves your support. A few years later, he actually renegated on that and wrote in the public press, this man's a liar and he's a beggar, you know, and that was because Roper had actually promised or said to Price that he was going to go to Africa and work as a missionary. And when Roper didn't do that, Price thought that he was clearly a liar, he wasn't telling the truth, then he needed to defame him really in the public prints, as, as, um, as he wrote in this letter in 1840. And there's another example where uh, of an American, um, and he's actually describing how British aristocrats slandered Roper in the press, particularly because I think of the graphic, vi- uh, the graphic language that Roper used to describe slavery, but also because of his interracial marriage to an English woman. And I think that's really key. And I think it just shows that if black activists didn't have access to certain white networks, a lot of venues were closed to them and their reputation could really be ruined by white abolitionists even, or just white people in general. And so sticking with these kind of the idea of these kind of networks, because you mean, you know, you talk about kind of how, how Roper found his efforts hampered, you know, not only by I mean deliberate sabotage, but also by this kind of lack of of networks. Uh, so how how did these kind of like networks that the kind of black abolitionists tapped into? How did they how did they develop and evolve from the kind of eighteen thirties onwards from Roper's time? Well, I think the sort of golden age of these networks really was the 1840s and 1850s. And that was for two main reasons. One, because of African-Americans themselves, by they were coming over to Britain, you know, they were inspiring people to create anti-slavery societies. You know, their activism helped um, create organisations as well, really. Um, So there was a sort of sustained anti-slavery momentum, if you like. And... I think another aspect of that was William Lloyd Garrison. So radical American abolitionist who traveled to the UK several times. And he actually established a sort of hub of friends and networks in certain places. So I mentioned Bristol earlier. He had a friend there called John Eslin. So the Eslin family really sort of held Bristol as it were. So a lot of African-Americans who supported William Lloyd Garrison would obviously go to Bristol and speak there. Um, You have people like Richard D. Webb who sort of held the city of Dublin, if we're going to call it like that. You had John Murray and William Smeal in Glasgow. And um, you had as well female anti-slavery societies that supported garrison and they kind of uh, popped up in cork and belfast and perth and um, bridgewater as well and rochdale and they were often created as a result of black activist missions and more black americans came to britain in the 1840s and the 1850s 
And I suppose the last thing I'd say just really quickly is that um, the importance of networks really can't be overstated because obviously if you had friends in certain areas, those friends could organize lectures for you. They could print thousands of handbills illustrating, okay, there's a lecture next week, please come. They could put adverts in newspapers because usually Garrisonian abolitionists were either editors or friends of newspaper editors. So those editors could put adverts in their newspapers and they could write very positive coverage of that particular lecture. So that's also really, really important. Um, so did the former slaves doing these kind of abolitionist speaking tours of, of the UK, did they target particular areas for their for their lectures and kind of addresses and all these things, you know, port towns, major industrial centres and, and so forth? Or are they actually fairly eclectic in their choice in their choices of venues? Yes, both actually. I mean they lectured in large towns because they were would usually have some sort of support there or hearing they might be in touch with someone of influence so obviously london liverpool bristol edinburgh glasgow you know all these sort of big hubs would obviously attract um, some form of anti-slavery society as well and i've mentioned about garrisonian friends in certain locations as well which obviously made an impact i think an, another important aspect of this was also the the railway and douglas actually talks about how he um, he says a quote about going with almost electric speed around the UK because there's sometimes a choice of location depending on whether there was a train station in a town, for example, and whether people could meet him there. And I found another reference in a newspaper in Newcastle that a special train was actually put on at quarter past 10 at night to allow people from a nearby towns to go and see Douglas give a lecture and I think that's really, really important, not only in terms of tourism and sort of visiting a lecture in, in another town, but obviously how abolitionists like Douglas really exploited where they were in their location. But I think it's also important to say that these activists were really going to any place where they could get a hearing. You know, their goal was to sell their narratives, to educate Britons on slavery and, and correct those misconceptions and they'd go anywhere they would go to Ventnor on the Isle of Wight you know Colourcoats which is this beautiful fishing village in the northeast they would go anywhere and as I mentioned um sort of Moses Roper would you know he created a very you know an incredibly extensive tour around the UK. Cool so I mean you you hinted at him there but I think it's about time we got onto the big cheese. Um why does Frederick Douglass emerge as the most prominent of these speakers? Indeed, I mean was he the most prominent at the time or is this is he been over well, sorry over <laughs> overemphasized by by historians and, and indeed the current president? <laughs> I definitely think that he hasn't been overemphasized. He just comes through the, as through the newspaper press as just this incredible figure. And I've analysed hundreds of newspaper reports, really, and he emerges as the person with the largest coverage in terms of column space, but actually also for the very lavish descriptions of him and his popularity. And I don't think any other African-American really compares to those descriptions. So Douglas is called a Negro Hercules, a modern Demosthenes after the famous classical orator. You know, there's one newspaper that says um, his blows against slavery are like a mace wielded by a giant. You know, all this beautiful, beautiful language. And Douglas speaks to hundreds of thousands of people. You know, audiences cram themselves into town halls and churches. You know, hundreds are turned away. 
and even resort to craning their necks to listen through an open window to hear him speak. I mean, it's this really large celebrity, really. You know, people write songs and poems about him and write anti-slavery slogans in the walls of churches and buildings and things like that. But ultimately, I'd argue that he's the most successful because he creates such a perfect balance between cultivating anti-slavery networks, you know, the railway and, and befriending newspaper editors exploiting connections to abolitionists and staying in those places but also because he's perfecting his performance you know he has such a commanding stage presence he's young and attractive and his rhetoric is just spellbinding you know he forces people to see the relationship between slavery and southern society and southern religion like no other i mean he calls slaveholders angels and devils robes he's using this beautiful language and one minute he's making audiences laugh and then another crying and cheering and stamping their feet so hard the buildings are actually shaking and it sounds very dramatic but all of these things actually happened you know and i think his oratory really can't be overstated you know he would start slow and quietly and then build his voice into this crescendo and he's just so good at challenging critics and his audiences. He's an excellent mimic as well. He pretends to be a slaveholder, which obviously creates numerous amounts of laughter. And he creates all sorts of controversies and becomes this transatlantic celebrity, really. And just as, as a follow up, looking at your kind of like your mapping project, I mean, Douglas's coverage of the United Kingdom was, you know, immense. I mean, how far, what was the farthest north place that you found that he, that he visited? Oh, that's a good question. I think probably Aberdeen. So not maybe as far as you might suggest. I know Moses Roper definitely did go further. Um, he definitely went to Inverness. I don't think Douglas went there, but I'd have to double check. So I think as well, Douglas was kind of sticking to those sorts of abolitionist hubs, but he did travel extensively around Scotland. Cool. Now, unless you've been to John O'Groats and Land's End, and quite frankly, I'm not that impressed. Um, <laughs> I, um, I mean, moving on from, from, from Douglas then, and I think that was a really great vivid picture you gave us of what it would have been like to be at one of Douglas's uh, events. Where So far, we've discussed uh, people who were former slaves uh, exclusively. Were there any free um, African-Americans who were involved in similar speaking to us, you know, African-Americans that had been born free um, rather than escaped from slavery? Yes, there was a woman called Sarah Remond. So unlike Mrs. Jackson, who I mentioned earlier, uh, Mrs. Jackson was born enslaved. Sarah Remond was born free, but she actually came over here in the late 1850s. And unlike Ellen Craft, she actually used her voice to lecture against slavery. And she, uh, Sarah Remen was sort of described in the press as a sort of refined and civilised and feminine woman, you know, with these sort of gendered terms, basically meaning she was respectful enough to be on a public stage. And she appealed directly to the women in her audiences. You know, women were central in the abolitionist fight as a whole, and she invoked this idea of a sisterhood, a black and white sisterhood, to try and... Um, you know, she said, we need to wait every Westford gale to basically help destroy slavery. And she said, women had always been at the first at the cross and the last at the tomb. You know, this idea that black women and, and white women also were really, really central to um, reform causes in general. And again, it was really novel for a black woman to lecture at all, let alone on graphic subjects. I mean, she talked about violence towards women. She talked about rape and she also talked about infanticide as well. 
given that I'm currently living and working in Liverpool, and also, I mean, given Liverpool's centrality to the slave trade and the fact that it was thereafter a beneficiary of the, the slave system uh, in America, was it was Liverpool as a city a particularly attractive venue for speakers? I ask because I found out from your uh, your mapping project that Frederick Douglass spoke just round the corner from my university office. That's amazing. We should probably work on getting a heritage plaque set up there or, or something like that. It definitely should be, yeah. actually, yeah. <laughs> well, Liverpool is a really important place. And by mentioning Liverpool, I just want to read a quote from possibly my favourite speech that Douglas gave. And I think it really speaks to why he was so popular. So in the autumn of um, 1846, he said to a Liverpoolian audience, Under the drippings of the American sanctuary, slavery has its existence. Whips, chains, gags, bloodhounds, thumbscrews and all the bloody paraphernalia of slavery lie right under the drippings of the sanctuary. And instead of being corroded and rusted by its influence, they're kept in a state of preservation. Ministers of religion defend slavery from the Bible. Ministers of religion own any number of slaves. Bishops trade in human flesh. Churches may be said to be literally built up in human skulls and their very walls cemented with human blood. Women are sold at the public block to support a minister, to support a church, human beings sold to buy sacramental services, and all, of course, with the sanction of the religion of the land. So again, that kind of powerful rhetoric we see from Douglas. But Liverpool is also a really important place for black abolitionists in general. I mean, it's usually the place where they first set foot on British soil. So a lot of them say that they found themselves free for the first time almost because they're in a different country away from America. You know, if they were followers of William Lloyd Garrison, they would stay in a particular hotel, Brown's Temperance Hotel. I don't think that's there anymore. And uh, obviously there are friendly abolitionists that could sort them out um, lectures. But William Wells Brown actually gave a lecture in Liverpool literally as soon as he set foot on British soil in, in, in Liverpool. A custom official was going through his luggage, basically, as he just stepped out of the steamship and pulled out this iron collar, which had been used as a torture device and all these crowds of people came to look. So Brown sort of styles this opportunity as a sort of Q&A about slavery. And obviously he knows that he's doing this in a place that was built on the profits of the slave trade. But lastly, Ida B. Wells, I think, is, is a good example here as well because she's a lot more explicit about those connections to the slave trade when she travels to Liverpool in 1894. And she actually writes an editorial specifically saying that, that Liverpool was built on the profits of slavery. Okay, and I mean, from thinking about how they were they were impacting on the uh, in England to how these slaves were actually impacting back home. I mean, what were they what were they doing during the American Civil War in the eighteen sixties? I mean, did any did any return to America, or did they still sort of focus their attentions on on trying to win over the British um, against the Confederacy and on the side of the Union? A few did, actually. William Powell, who was actually based in Liverpool as well, that's a nice segue, he actually returns to America because he wants to fight in the war. But there are other activists who stay in Britain, who travel to Britain to challenge pro-Confederate support and and really the growth of racism in, in British society. And as I think you mentioned on the last podcast, talking about transatlantic abolitionism, the Civil War had a really dramatic impact on the British landscape. You know, the supply of slave-grown cotton dried up, so factories in Lancashire in particular, had to shut down, you know, places like Burnley, 
about 10,000 out of 13,000 um, working men and women were unable to work. And again, you'd think the working classes wouldn't be interested in listening to fugitive slaves, but they really were. They were identifying with them. And again, in that last podcast, you mentioned about this huge meeting in Manchester in New Year's Eve in 1862, and the working classes are really expressing their support for Lincoln's Emancipation Procl- uh, Proclamation. And then you have successful lecturers like William Henry Jackson, who tours around Britain. He's the former coachman and slave of the president of the Confederacy, Jefferson Davis. And he uses his lectures to mock Davis and sort of by extension, the Confederacy itself, you know, in front of thousands of people. And he also challenges the Confederate commissioner, Shee Kay, James Mason, in person. He basically goes up to him in this very public uh, place and just says to his face, I was lately the coachman to your president. Um, so that's a really, really interesting example of, of resistance as well. And then you have people like Selim Martin, who gave hundreds of speeches, and he was really challenging pro-Confederate support in the UK, and he hoped that Confederate sympathisers had, in his words, hadn't been so successful as to blow sugar into their eyes or cotton into their ears. And interestingly, you've also noted that many speakers continue to come to Britain uh, to speak about lynching in particular. Could you tell us more about that? Yes, I think it's a narrative that a lot of historians don't discuss. And I think that after the American Civil War, it's important to realise that formerly enslaved activists still continue their lectures. So I mentioned Stella Martin there. He was here until 1868 trying to raise money for African-Americans in the Freedmen's Bureau. Slave narratives were still being published in the 1870s and the 1880s. And I just want to talk about two people, Josiah Henson and Ida B. Wells. And Josiah Henson... He was born enslaved in 1789 and he lived a really illustrious life. You know, he uh, was a fugitive slave. He was a preacher, a military officer, an abolitionist, an author. And he was actually believed to be the inspiration behind the character of Uncle Tom in Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, which was this famous anti-slave novel published in 1852. And he came to Britain in 1876 and he received thousands of invitations to speak. Now, this is over you know, a decade after the Civil War had ended. And he actually addressed half a million people in less than a year, um, really sort of six months, I think, really. And that's impressive by itself. But then we have to remember that he was 88 at this point. And he was invited to Windsor Palace to meet Queen Victoria. Even Madame Tussaud created a wax figure of him, which is this amazing uh, anecdote, I think, which I try to um, plump up a lot in my PhD. But um, it's, it's important as well to kind of note that Henson really revokes that Uncle Tom epithet. You know, he kind of gets tired of it and says, my name isn't Uncle Tom. And stop calling me Uncle Tom in the newspapers because my name is Josiah Henson. But you you spoke about lynching and Ida B. Wells actually travels to Britain in 1893 and 1894. And Wells is this very famous activist who basically became more well-known really in the 1920s and, and 1930s. But she she came to Britain to lecture about lynching. And, and in Britain, most people or most newspapers who reported on lynching believed it was some form of frontier vigilantism or that it was justified in in some way and and Wells really changed that she argued it was a result of white supremacy and actually in in many cases white women were were responsible for some of those lynchings in the sense that they entered into relationships with black men and when they were caught they cried rape so that was really significant okay and to to start to round off the the this podcast and um 
to kind of come to a couple of conclusions. I've just got a, a couple of questions for you. And, and the first one is, I mean, ultimately, um, you know, these former slaves are over in Britain for a purpose. You know, they're, they're trying to win hearts and minds in Britain and the hope in many ways that it'll have some sort of effect back in the United States. And I suppose the most direct example of this I could think of to ask you about whether they were successful or not. I mean, what effect, if any, do you think these former slaves, you know, preaching to, 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 to the British public has on Britain's eventual decision not to support the Confederacy, um, which it sort of flirts with doing with for the, the first couple of years of the Civil War? I think that British people couldn't claim to be ignorant or misinformed about slavery, I think, after just decades of lectures by African-Americans, you know, and, and, and also during the Civil War as well. And black testimony really played an important part amongst the grassroots. So obviously, in, you know, in the areas where the working classes were suffering because of a lack of cotton, you know, William Henry Jackson specifically lectured amongst the working class and said, you know, your bosses and mill owners are actually like slave owners in the US. You know, we need to join together in solidarity. And I think that was a really, really important point to that. But impact itself is a very difficult thing to measure. I mean, how do we measure impact as a whole? You know, do we start trying to record the thousands of people that came to listen or the millions even, you know, the places they lectured, how many thousands of narratives were sold, how many thousands of pounds raised anti-slavery societies. But I think it's important to realise that British people were genuinely stirred by black testimony. I mean, during a speech by Henry Highland Garnet in Carlisle in around the early 1850s, you know, the sailor stood up and declared that although he'd witnessed scenes of slavery before, I, you know, I never understood slavery until tonight. And I've smoked tobacco for 30 years, but I've smoked my last tonight. And it's quite a romantic image. And whether the sailor kept that promise, we obviously can't tell. But I think that men and women, particularly the working classes, were really moved by that testimony. You know, in another example, one woman donated a penny to Sella Martin in the mid-1860s and, and said that every one of my family had done without something that week in order to add to it. And that's really powerful. And I think that white abolitionists often recounted those stories, but black activists were often overwhelmed by that support. And I think that regardless of anything, you know, black men and women were traveling to the UK to educate people and to say, you know, and to really tell the black people's side of the story. Okay, and and final question, um, and you can take this whatever way you want. I mean, you clearly just from listening to you over the past hour, uh, you know, you clearly know these people about as intimately as as anybody ever ever has. And I was just wondering, as a collective, how do you think we should remember, um, these former slaves who went over? and conducted these speaking tours and in, in so many cases were, were incredibly successful and talented at what they did? That's a really good question. And I think one of the things that um, I've tried to do is organize walking tours. I've done that a couple of times where, you know, you're, I'm sort of taking people to the sites where black men and women lectured um, you have, I mean, we joked earlier about having a, a heritage plaque, but obviously a heritage plaque to Douglas in, in Liverpool would be wonderful. So I think that, you know, memorialising, I think their mark on British society is really, really important. But then also remembering their liter literary challenges, their visual challenges, you know, and how they challenge white supremacy in every way. So I think something material would be wonderful, you know, a statue to Douglas or a statue to Moses Roper or just trying to get maybe 
libraries in, in, in this probably sounds a bit ambitious, but libraries and museums in, you know, every single county to actually try and, um, you know, use something in their collection to kind of highlight a black abolitionist journey because every library will have something. Well, that is a fantastic conclusion there. And I think that is, those are incredibly worthwhile aims, I think, to really highlight the the impact and influence of, you know, former slave speakers on on British audiences uh, prior to the Civil War and after the Civil War, as you mentioned. Thank you so much for coming on uh, to talk about that. I found it absolutely fascinating, and certainly there's 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 elements of what you've you've said, like Douglas's speech in Liverpool, that I'm now kind of going to be listening to this again and frantically scribbling notes so I can cor- incorporate <laughs> it into my lectures on this subject. Yeah. No, so that's quite the compliment coming from Malcolm since I think he's listened to about a grand total of 12 minutes of the, the entire podcast we've well, recorded. I detest <laughs> hearing my own voice, that's all. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, no, no problem at all. D- delighted to. And like, I mean, I would encourage anyone to look at the, the Frederick Douglass in Britain uh, mapping project. Really, really great resource. And next time, uh, we're going to continue... Uh, or th- of thematic look at uh, African-American uh, involvement in, in politics and culture and society by examining uh, black political candidates uh, in the United States before uh, the era of Barack Obama. So that's going to be our 42nd episode. Yes, looking forward to it. And so, well, thank you very much to to Hannah Rose Murray for being our guest today. And thank you, Mark, uh, as usual, uh, for joining me in uh, what I thought was a a fascinating and uh, very, really informative uh, conversation about uh, black abolitionists in Britain. Cool. Thank you very much. Goodbye.